Welcome everybody to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 252 recap on Twitter spaces. It's Thursday, May 25th, and we're going to be talking about validity proofs and the mempool and a bunch of services and client software updates today. We have a few special guests. We'll go through introductions and we'll jump into the newsletter. I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm a contributor at Bitcoin Optech and also executive director at Brink, where we fund open source Bitcoin developers. Merch? Hi, I'm Wen Taproot, and I impersonate Merch today. Gloria? Hi, I'm Gloria. I work on Bitcoin Core at Brink. Robin? Hi, I'm Robin. I'm working on ZeroSync. We are applying stock proofs to Bitcoin. And Lucas? Yeah, I'm Lucas. I'm a colleague of Robin, working on the same thing. Awesome. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We'll just go through the newsletter sequentially. I've shared some tweets in the spaces. Otherwise, you can follow along at Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 252. Our news item for today is state compression with zero-knowledge validity proofs. And we have both authors of the white paper that was posted to the Bitcoin dev mailing list here to explain the idea, the, the benefits, and other interesting things that could be done with their proposal. Robin and Lucas, if I could summarize it, the usual way to understand the state of Bitcoin blockchain and transactions in the UTXO set is to download Bitcoin Core and run a full node, which a lot of people do. But there are other ways, and there's prune nodes, there's SPV, there's all kinds of other techniques to kind of understand aspects of what's going on in the Bitcoin blockchain. But there is a new way that you guys are proposing here using zero knowledge proofs to compress the state into a proof using some cryptographic tooling and, and techniques such that we can, as users of those proofs, we can validate those proofs and maybe understand a bit about the blockchain without having to download all that information. Perhaps you guys can walk through, correct anything I've said, and maybe provide a, a high level summary of what your paper goes over, and then we can jump into some of the details. Robin, do you wanna start or? Yeah, sure, thanks. Yeah, what you explained was perfectly right. What we are basically doing is we are running a full node inside of a proof system. So a very beefy server does the initial block download once, and then it creates a proof that they did it correctly. And then they can share their proof with like millions of ZK nodes, and they can basically instantly verify the chain state with that proof. And what is included in, in that proof. What What is being validated and what is not? Maybe talk a little bit about the prototype you have and then, and then plans for the future about how different things could be validated. I'll do it the other way around. In the end version, everything or like all consensus rules can be verified within the proof, except for the longest chain route, the, the longest chain rule and the data availability. So you can verify like the, the proof of work, the difficulty adjustments, the UTXO set, the fees, the coin emission schedule, and basically everything except for the longest chain rule, because the proof is only aware of a single chain at a time. So you still would have to connect to some peer-to-peer -peer network, and it would be required that, in, that you are connected to at least one honest peer. And as, as long as you have one honest peer, you could easily find out what is the, what is the longest chain by using a proof. I think in the paper... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, sorry. I was going to say, I think in, in the paper to, to illustrate that you guys created a, a web verifier for these chain proofs so that you could actually have... A, yes. Compile something down into WebAssembly such that you someone in a web browser could very quickly verify Bitcoin's chain state on a, on a website. Is that right? Yes. Yes, that's right. And um, in, in that web demo, it is only headers chain proof. We are planning to build the full, full chain state proof in three stages. The first stage is very similar to an SPV client. In the second stage, we call it the assume valid proof, which verifies all consensus rules except for the scripts. In the third stage, we will verify everything. And what's currently available in that web demo is the headers chain proof, but we have also built a prototype of that assume valid proof that already uses, for example, U3XO to manage the UTXO set within the proof. 
And so you mentioned these these different types of proofs that you're that you're working on and, and have worked on. What you know, I think everybody thinks of the use case of having a, a quicker initial sync. Maybe you can speak to that briefly. I, I think that you have some technology that's been integrated in a Blockstream satellite. Maybe you can talk to that a bit. We are going to integrate it into a Blockstream satellite. Currently, it's not integrated. But yeah, the Blockstream satellite is a great use case for our technology because it's very bandwidth constrained. You can already sync with the Blockstream satellite, but it takes, I think, weeks or even a month to download the entire blockchain. And without chain state proof, you could sync within a second or so. And combining it with a U3XO node, you can immediately start listening for new blocks and yeah, start participating in the network basically instantly. And what, what are the considerations in terms of concerns about this cryptography or downsides to using this technology versus just you know running your full node or, or syncing in a traditional way? What should people be conscious of? The cryptography itself is relatively conservative because it, it doesn't introduce any new fancy cryptographic assumptions. Um, there is a range of different uh, zero-knowledge proof proposals, but we are using Starks, which is probably the most conservative one. Others are using pairings and stuff that is less battle-tested, I'd say. And also Starks have been around for quite a while. And I think within the cryptographer community, there is not much of concerns about it but of course it's, it's still very novel technology and it will take us quite a while to, to to get to a point where it gets even remotely close to to bitcoin core in terms of security we, we would have to harden it a lot and we need lots of eyeballs to really check it before we could claim anything close to bitcoin core security there was a second use case that you noted in the white paper that is trustless light clients can you speak to that a bit and how that differs from SPV? Yes, maybe Lucas wants to wants to answer that. Sure. So yeah, the use case we thought of is basically that when you request a full node to send you, for example, your UTXOs, so you first connect to the network, you have some wallet address, you want to know what UTXOs you can spend possibly, and then they could withhold you some data or basically with any any anything you request. They can hold, withhold data and you kind of have to trust the full node in that they will send you the data you asked for. And with a proof, they could essentially prove that they did send everything that you requested. Versus SPV, SPV where something could be withheld, is that right? Yeah, so yes. you, and with SPV, you only have the Merkle path, right? But if the node deci just decides to not send you the Merkle path and just say, no, sorry, I didn't find any tr at the transaction, I didn't find it in the, in the block you specified, then you could, or you would have to go on to ask the next node and eventually be convinced that it does not exist. But yeah, with a start, with a proof, it gets a bit easier and you lose the trust assumption or get rid of it. And, and I would say, I would add that SPV clients, the more people are using SPV clients, the higher the incentive for miners to mine invalid chains, because the SPV client, of course, it cannot check if the inclusion proof that it gets are actually from a valid chain. They assume that the longest chain they know is also a valid chain. And well, the more people are relying on that assumption, the higher the incentive to break that assumption. And with a CK light, light, light client, there is no incentive to mine an, an invalid chain because the, the light client will validate the validity of, of the chain. So yeah, it's, it makes no sense to, to mine an invalid chain. Another use case. Or you can just not trick them. You mentioned a couple other potential uses for these types of proofs. One is privacy on the Lightning Network being improved. How would that work? What's, yes. what's the problem now and how, how, do, how would a proof address it? Currently in the peer-to-peer -peer gossip protocol, you kind of have to dox yourself because you have to tell everybody about your UTXOs. That is a measure against DOS attacks so that you cannot announce channels that don't exist. And when you use DK proofs, you could prove that you own some channels without revealing which channels you actually own. And yeah, that, that would be great for privacy. And what about proof of reserves or attestations? That, that was also mentioned in, in the paper as a use case. True, yeah. The, people have been thinking about that for quite a while, I think, to use zero-knowledge proofs to do proof-of-reserves. Uh, yeah, that would 
be basically a byproduct of our chain state proof. And would that be, I, I can prove that I own a certain amount of Bitcoins or that I can control a certain amount of Bitcoins without revealing the UTXOs involved? Exactly. You could basically prove any kind of statement about the UTXO set, both in plain setting and in zero knowledge. So you could, you could prove I own that many UTXOs and I held them for at least that amount of time. Go ahead, Lucas. Did you have something to say? No, that was exactly it. <laughs> You could even prove that they are time-locked. You could even prove that they are time-locked and you cannot move them even if you wanted to. Pretty cool. Will you speak a bit to what, what, are Z, what is ZK Coins and maybe provide an, an overview to, to that? It seems like it, it's building on this technology, but it is something a bit, a bit different. We've covered Taproot assets and RGB previously. It seems like it's in that similar vein of client-side validated protocols. Maybe you want to get into that a bit and how you differ from those other protocols. Yeah, it is based on the fundamental idea behind Tarot and RGB. And yeah, that fundamental idea is client-side validation. And in client-side validation, there is not really global consensus. There is like local consensus. When I send you a coin, I attach to that coin a proof of history validity or like a proof of transaction history so that you, the recipient, you verify that the entire history of that coin is actually correct. And what is great about that is that it removes a lot of burden of verification from the main layer and shifts it off chain to the recipient. And that is quite cool because the recipient is actually the only one in the world who is very, who is incentivized to, to actually validate the history of a coin. And the main problem with them has been that the history grows quasi exponentially because every transaction has at least one input and on average it has more than one input. So if you walk back in time pretty quickly, the history becomes mostly the entire history of all coins. And yeah, that scales poorly, but we can combine that with ZK Snarks, ZK Starks, and that is a great match because it allows you firstly to compress the entire history into a constant size proof. So no matter how long the history becomes, it will always be constant size and very tiny. And on top of that, you get zero knowledge. Like you get perfect privacy. You can obfuscate both the transaction amounts and the transaction graphs. And the on-chain data becomes indistinguishable to eavesdroppers. So you learn nothing about transactions at all. You also mentioned in the paper this notion of aggregators and sort of aggregating data. And it made me think, is that, is that similar to what open timestamps does and that it's sort of aggregating a bunch of data and then, and then putting it into the blockchain? Is it, is yeah. there something like that? Can, can you explain aggregators? I feel like the term inscribers would be a better term because they are inscribing commitments to ZSV transactions into the blockchain. And yeah, what's cool about that is that when you have like those middlemen between you and the blockchain, then you can make CKCSV transactions without having to have BTC. So if I send you, for example, Tether or so, um, then you get like 10 Tether, but you have no BTC yet. So in, in, in conventional models, you would have to buy some BTC first to pay Bitcoin fees to make a Tether transaction. But if there's that inscriber in between us, or like in between you and the blockchain, you can just make a Tether transaction and pay the inscriber in Tether, and then the inscriber pays the Bitcoin transaction fees. I've somewhat monopolized the questions here. Maybe open the floor. Merch, you have some follow-ups? Yeah, so for the ZK coins, I, f I first was wondering whether the transactions you're talking about are essentially compressing on-chain transactions, but it sounds like it's more of a colored coin scheme. This is more in the wheelhouse of, like, say, BRC20 tokens right now, just way more efficient, private, and better? Or is this a way to compress on-chain transactions? Right now, without a soft fork, it would be just for you know, stable coins and, and stuff like that. The best thing you could do is like to mint a privacy coin by burning bitcoins. I think that would not introduce a shit coin, but yeah, you could at least have some kind of privacy coin on top of Bitcoin. But of course, all of that is quite unsatisfying. And in the long term, we hope that we will have either like a zero knowledge proof verifier on Bitcoin, for example, within, within Simplicity, or some side chain that can, can validate zero knowledge proofs. And both of that would allow us to pack Bitcoin into a ZK coin, and then we would have much more throughput on Bitcoin and full privacy. Merch or Gloria, do you have other questions? 
You mentioned that it is currently not viable to produce the proofs in the same amount of time that new blocks are produced. So how long until you can produce proofs quick enough to catch up with the chain tip? Maybe Lucas wants to answer again. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a tough question. So we have some, <laughs> we have some optimizations in mind, but the truth is that, yeah, proving right now is very expensive and blocks tend to get bigger, more transactions, more hashes that are generally like 80% of the proving computation. And yeah, now takes about four hours for just a single block, but we are confident in our optimization techniques and there are still a lot left that we can implement and work towards a reasonable amount of time. I think 10 minutes will still be tough, but we have the option to parallelize the proving for blocks. So we can then prove five blocks in parallel and then recursively verify them in the next step and therefore, you know, almost divide the time we need for every block by five or a constant number. Well, you can also parallelize single blocks. Like you can batch up, like you can have like batches of transactions, let's say 10 transactions or so, and give them to one person and then the next batch to some other person and then they can approve in parallel. And then you aggregate all those proofs into one big proof. And what is required for that is mostly very efficient proof recursion. So you can verify a proof in a proof to get a more succinct proof or like to combine two proofs into one proof and do that recursively until you have a block proof for all transactions. And we think that this will give a huge performance boost. And additionally, for the initial catch-up for proving the existing about 800,000 blocks, we will use probably ASICs or FPGAs or something to like yeah do that in a reasonable amount of time for um, the initial sync. And then afterwards, it will be much easier to keep producing new, 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 new block proofs within 10 minutes. Right. And of course, the proof only has to be produced a single time for the chain tip. So after that, it can just be yeah. distributed. Yeah. And very important point is that we might have that FPGA set up at the beginning and then people might be, hey, no, we don't want to trust that single prover. But that is not the case. We, we just produce that proof once and then we share it with the world and then everybody can extend that chain proof even if we die and never show up again. It sounds like there's a lot of work still to be done here in terms of research and, and other work. Is there a call to action that you'd have for the audience in terms of you know your paper and, and maybe the space more broadly? I would say it's mostly engineering work. Like I think the problems that we have are solved on a theoretical level, and it's very much a matter of, of engineering work. Any final um, words that you'd leave the audience with? Yeah, but, but call to action, definitely, if you want to join us, if, you, if, if you're a developer, we are definitely looking for more people to join the project. And if you're, if you're a sponsor, we are definitely looking for, for, for more sponsors. We are a Swiss nonprofit. And we, we personally, we believe this is very valuable for the, for the Bitcoin community. And if we are right that it's very valuable, then people would probably sponsor it. And if not, we should probably work on something different. But it looks like people are getting that this is a good thing for Bitcoin and that it's important. Robin and Lucas, thank you for joining us. You're welcome to stay on if you want to comment on the rest of the newsletter or listen in. Otherwise, you, you guys are free to, to jump off if you have other things to do. Yeah, thanks a lot for having us. It's a great honor. Like Your newsletter is probably one of the most, most reputable ones in the entire field. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks a lot. The summary was almost better than our paper, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> It looks like we might have a question from the audience. Sovereign individual. Well, maybe not. The next section from the newsletter is part of a weekly series we're doing. The first one was last week, Waiting for Confirmation. This is part two on incentives. To recap, last week we talked about mempool as a cache of unconfirmed transactions that essentially allow users a way to send transactions to miners in a decentralized way. And we're going to build on that thought process today here. And one of the authors of, of this segment, Gloria, is here to walk us through her thought process on incentives. Yeah. So kind of following up on the two ideas that we explored last week, one being it's just a cash. It's just a cash among confirmed transactions. And the other being 
that we have this decentralized transaction relay system. So on one hand, we're like, okay, the first question you might ask when you're talking about a cache and in a computer is like, how do we measure its utility? Like we want it to be useful. So like, how do we measure the usefulness of each item in this cache? And of course the other one is, you know, we're, we're riding this wave of high transaction volume. And so, you know, mempools kind of serve as this decentralized fee-based market for block space. And then let's see. So we kind of start off this post with this idea that block space is scarce. And that's a good thing. We've probably been feeling its scarcity for the past few weeks. And because of the scarcity, we have this, we have to have some way of or I guess the miners have to have some way of deciding what goes into blocks. And ideally, the fairest kind of decision-making process, or in the free market sense, it, hopefully this decision-making process is just based on fees. So mempools kind of serve as this public auction platform where you can see what other people have bid. You can estimate what you might need to bid in order to beat someone to, to get this block space. And we also talk about a little bit about how mining, like block assembly works, at least in Bitcoin Core. To my knowledge, miners are using the same algorithm. It's pretty good. Merch has done a lot of research in, like it's, it's not the perfectly optimal algorithm. It is one that kind of relies on, you know, mempool caching being, being a thing and then it's it's this greedy algorithm and we have two examples of policies that we list in that post about these two policies essentially help with the efficacy of this again not optimal greedy algorithm because selecting transactions to fit inside to maximize fees and to fit inside the segob limit and the weight limit is an mp hard problem so yeah that's that's kind of the general overview. I don't know if Merch, Merch was the other author on this, if you want to elaborate on any of these things. I, I kind of wanted to bridge a little bit from the title of our column to the content. So why did, did we call this piece incentive? And so the idea is, of course, we, we want to have this big market for block space where everybody can see what other people are bidding where you can get your transaction through by bidding the most. And that makes, of course, sense from the miners' perspective, where the miners say, we want to maximize the fees that we collect in each block. But it also makes sense from the user's perspective, because as we already mentioned last week, block propagation is faster when we have all transactions already that miners include in their blocks. And therefore... Also, sorry, also when we fee estimate, we we base that on what we have seen in our mempools. So we want to have the same things in the mempool, in our mempool, as the miners do in their mempool. As long as the mempools across the network are homogenous, we get the best results both for block propagation, fee estimation. We get the most informed bids for ourselves. So... The incentives are aligned in that regard. Gloria, you mentioned selecting transactions for a block due to the limit on weight and SIG ops being an NP hard problem. Can you try to break down what an NP hard problem is? Oh, let me look up the Wikipedia page for NP hard problem. Basically, a, a difficult problem. So this is, if you're a computer science person this is two-dimensional knapsack kind of the basically mp hard means like the only way to let's say you're given a mempool and you're trying to build a four million weight unit block and you're trying to like figure out what is the like absolute maximum amount of fees that i can fit into this block and which transactions are those kind of the only way to figure that out is to try every single combination there are ways to try to do it better. For example, um, what we'll do is we'll try to sort by ancestor fee rate and we'll select the better, the best ones first. However, of course, it, kind of the best example of, of this 
is let's say you have a transaction that is very extremely close to 4 million weight units. Like it's like that giant taproot wizard, for example, because we use a greedy algorithm, if there is so much as one transaction, that's like a hundred virtual bytes that has a higher fee rate than that four megabyte one, we will select that tiny one first and then not have room for the second best fee rate transaction in the mempool. Of course, like we can add logic to potentially swap out those transactions because, you know, in this situation to you and me, it's like very obvious that like we should evict this other transaction from our block template and put in this, this huge taproot wizard that pays the second highest fee rate. But we're really concerned about performance when we're talking about building a block template for miners, like every millisecond counts, right? Because you're trying to, you're, you, you only get these fees if you win the block. And so generate, sorry, get block template should be really fast, um, which is why we take these quote unquote shortcuts and we do things like we limit how big a standard transaction can be so that we're not getting into these situations where it's, you know, it's between this gigantic high fee rate transaction and like, um, like swapping things out and stuff, which, so like, did I answer the question? It's a hard problem. <laughs> and so kind of, we do pretty well by limiting what transactions we're going to be working with and using this like greedy algorithm and picking by ancestor fee rate. Well, okay. No, it's okay. Just, just, just to, it's two knapsack plus the extra complications of you have dependencies between transactions. So for example, if one unconfirmed transaction spends another, you have to mine the parent in order to mine the child. So this like adds a layer of complexity. I probably should have said this in the beginning. I apologize, but this is just to illustrate that it is NPR. It's a hard problem. March has his hand raised. Yeah. I, th I think that you already mentioned the, the main point, which is basically the problems trying to find the optimal solution for an NP-hard problem scales polynomially in the number of objects in the solution space. So, for example, people might know that sorting is kind of, you have to compare a lot of items in a list to sort something, but that scales with slightly more than linear. And polynomial means it blows up immensely. It it means that it exponentially increases in workload to find the optimal solution. So to to for example in the case of pool that has over a gigabyte of transactions with five hundred thousand different transactions queuing, we would have to find all possible orders to, to make sure that we got the optimal uh, next block. We would have to try all 500,000 transactions combined in any order, right? So you might imagine how much work that would be if we, if we tried to exhaustively search that. So we, we find that with the ancestor-based fee rate selection, we do pretty well already. Claire and I published a write-up last summer about trying to do this with a approach called candidate set-based mining, where we try to cluster transactions that are connected first and find the best package from that cluster to include in the next in the block next. And we found that at least for the the block times that we tried it on, the best result was only 0.7% more fees than just using the ancestor set based one, which is pretty quick. So we're we're not finding the optimal solution, but we're finding a good enough solution. And the whole problem gets much harder when the chunks that fit into the space are bigger, because then you 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 get sort of an effect towards the end with the greedy approach that is called the tail effect where some of the transactions might not fit in anymore and you have to start swapping out by limiting ourselves to transactions that are most one tenth of the block we limit when when this tail effect starts and we can just sort of throw up our hands after trying a bunch of things and say well this is good enough Whereas if we allowed transactions to be up to the full block size, we would immediately start with the tail effect and then we would get into an, a situation where we actually have to try a huge combination space of possible 
things because we have to see. So let's say we we take these five transactions, but then nothing else fits in, and we we have to com compare that to thousands of other transactions combining and taking that space instead. Gloria or Merch, anything else that you'd like listeners to take away from this week's post in the series? I'm good. Oh, I guess one tiny thing. From the ultimate goal of this series is to help people building on top of Bitcoin or using Bitcoin to understand a little bit better how things work. I think people are probably in fee bumping binds nowadays and seeking as many solutions as possible. And there are various solutions out there. Ho hopefully, hopefully people kind of read this and start to demand better wallets, as well as look at some of the inefficiencies in mempool. So I, I think the existence of kind of out of band fee services can point to there maybe not being efficient enough public auction bidding processes or uh, available tools in available in the public market right and you know some of that like it's not necessarily the case that we cannot improve and this is one of the things that i really wanted to like communicate to the community with this series is like a demand better wallets build better wallets and b kind of let's work together as application and protocol devs or users and devs in general to make this interface better for everyone. That's kind of my main, my main message I wanted to finish off with. Dave, did you have a comment? Uh, so I, I do. I think this is a, a great section. I'm really glad that Gloria and Merch are writing it. And I completely agree with everything that Gloria just said, that this is a collaborative effort. You know, this is something that we all need to work on, trying to get policy right so that it works for as many use cases as possible, and also, you know, miners and nodes, relay nodes, making sure just everywhere works together. But I, I had an, an, a question while I was listening to Gloria and Merch talk. It's not really a question, it's a crazy idea. So it sounds to me like a lot of the complications that we have from creating good policy today are kind of related to ancestor mining. Now that's a really powerful feature to enable CPFP, and the people who want to build on it with things like transaction sponsors. But what if we went the other way and just soft forked out the ability to include any related transactions in the same block? So when a parent transaction goes in a block, that block can't include any children. So now it's no longer necessary to have ancestor favorite mining. We don't need package policies. Sorry, Gloria. What would that like massively simplify things? Would we be in a much better position to have more flexible policies? Or would there still be a lot of these underlying problems? I realize that, you know, Pakistan would still be an MP hard problem. You know, I just wanted to get Gloria and Merch's quick takes on, you know, what would that simplify if we didn't have the ability to have descendant transactions in the same blocks as their ancestors? Do you want to take it first? Okay, that, go ahead. This would make our lives so much easier. <laughs> Great idea. Concept back. <laughs> I, I, this is basically where the thoughts for things like cluster mempool come from. Basically, it's like, can we limit cluster size to one? Yeah, it would make things much, much, much easier. That's kind of that's my only answer. But it would, so, but it would, we would have use cases like, that are no longer available, of course. Yeah, exactly. So this would, would make mempool way easier. It would throw out a ton of DOS vectors. It would make block building massively easier. It would probably encourage a lot of people to very quickly finally add RBF support because now that would be the only way to unstuck transactions since you clearly could not CPFP stuff anymore. It would also introduce a bunch of new design constraints on second layer protocols and other ideas. So for example, of course, you wouldn't be able to have a lightning transaction that is bumped by, by a anchor output. The lightning transaction would have to be able to carry its own fee rate 
perhaps we could have, for example, on the commitment transactions and Sighash single construction where people can then add additional inputs to provide the fees. And that way we could still have lightning channels that close. But yeah, it, it would very much change a lot of the design properties for for things that are going on in the space. But yeah, cluster size one would, would be amazing. That would yeah, we we could probably skip ahead in a bunch of pro- protocol development efforts by, well, skip back in time and just not spend years on them. Yeah, I think looking back when we were, I remember a conversation with someone else where it was like, oh, we should have started with maximum cluster size one. Or like we should have started with you're not allowed to spend unconfirmed transactions in mempool. And then like as use cases like Lightning opened up, we'd be like, okay, how do we like get two transactions in a mempool? Or like, how do we get like, how do we add trees to the mempool? But instead we kind of started with like, oh, anything's allowed. And then we're like, oh, we can't handle this because of DOS. So we like try to add heuristics to like restrict things. And then we find like a difference between like what's what we can handle and, or like because we have these heuristics or we're not handling things optimally, there's like these pinning vectors or like whatever. And then basically now we're trying to like carve out what makes sense. And the vast majority of clusters are of size one in mempool, according to the research that that you guys have done. But like, of course, now if we were like, all right, we're going to change like Bitcoin Core's policy to not allow, you know, ancestor packages or descendant packages larger than two or one or whatever, then it's like, okay, now there, there are uses. There there are still like some people who are using this. So we cannot like now add the restriction. But if we had started with maximum size one, that would have been cool. And maybe we wouldn't have, we, we wouldn't, you know, be in the, in this situation, but we cannot go back in time and change that. Thanks for the answers. That's that's what I was thinking to a certain degree, but I'm glad to hear that I'm not completely crazy for thinking that. Thanks again. Next section of the newsletter is changes to services and client software. And we had a slew of them this week, so we'll try to work through them fairly, fairly quickly. First one is Passport Firmware 2.1.1 released. And this is a new firmware for the Passport hardware signer, and they add support for taproot addresses, BIP85 features, and then some improvements and bug fixes regarding certain multi-sig configurations and handling PSBTs. Next entry was about MuSig wallet being released. This is the, I think this was a product of a hackathon actually, and it's beta software, so don't use real funds or use sparingly. But this Munster software uses Noster in order to facilitate the communication rounds required for signing USIG multi-signature transactions. So there's some communication that's required to do a USIG multi-signature. And the way to coordinate that, one way to coordinate that could be using this Noster protocol to pass the incomplete transaction around for, for or for folks to sign to, to get that signature. So I thought that was a pretty creative product to come out of a hackathon. Merch? I also have to laud this project for having some of the coolest artwork. Yeah, I mean, you get a, a wide variety of, of output from these hackathons. Yeah, and they, they have a cool, was it a Frankenstein, do I recall correctly? Yeah, it's a monster. Next piece of software that we highlighted this week was a core lightning plugin manager named Coffee. And Coffee is essentially, so CLN has these notions of plugins which augment the functionality of the lightning software. And this plugin manager simplifies many of the aspects of managing a plugin, everything from installation, configuration, and then dependencies, and actually upgrading the, the plugins themselves. So it looked like a cool project to me. Yeah, I was actually wondering, I I think there is already a package manager for Core Lightning. Is it Reckless, I think? So I was wondering how the two fit together. But I think that the design approach or, or architecture approach from Core Lightning being focused on 
being package based and plugin based is already just sort of conducive to a third party coming in and starting to develop a plugin manager that plugs into the plugin architecture of Core Lightning. So this is this is pretty cool. I think this is a great way to sort of get leverage on your own development effort and getting the community involved. Electrum 4.4.3 being released. I think there was actually a 4.4.01 and 2, which were mostly <clears throat> had most of these features in it and then some bug, bug fixes on top. So I think the, the 4.4.0 release had these features, which is coin control improvements. I didn't say coin selection merch. Are you proud of me? A UTXO privacy analysis tool and support for short channel identifiers. Any comments there, Merch? Sounds great. Next thing we noted was to Trezor Suite adding coin join support. And so the, there's a Trezor hardware device, but there is also the Trezor Suite, which is a piece of software that interacts with that hardware signer. And they announced support for coin joins. And I think specific to note here is that it, it has to use the ZK Snacks coin join coordinator. That's actually a restriction of the software. So not only can you not use other coin join protocols, but even if you're using, I think this is the Wasabi based protocol, you have to use that one specific coordinator. But it is nice to see coin joins proliferating. Merch, thumbs up. Next piece of software that we noted was Lightning Loop defaulting to MUSIG2. So Lightning Loop is a provider, swap provider between on-chain and Lightning Bitcoins. And they are now default to using MUSIG2 as the default swap protocol. And the benefits there are lower fees and also better privacy. Merch, did you get a chance to look into this one? I have not looked into it specifically, but so the idea is that they use submarine swaps and submarine swaps are essentially a hash time lock contract that is executed on chain to either move coins from the chain into a lightning channel or vice versa to pay out a lightning transaction into an on-chain output. And the idea here is of course, that on-chain transactions can also benefit from using, or on-chain transactions can benefit from music to reduce the input size. And that makes the submarine swap have a lower block space footprint. So it'll save the customers money. Oh, and it'll look more private too, because it's indistinguishable from a single input transaction. The, yeah, folks, the folks at Mutiny, who I think we've covered previously in this monthly segment on the wallet work that they've done, they have something separate from their wallet, which is this Mutiny net, which is a custom signet. So it's a, a signed test net with 30 second block times. And they include a bunch of testing infrastructure as part of their custom signet. So they have you know a faucet to get some coins. They have a block explorer, and then they have a bunch of LSPs and, and lightning nodes running on this network. So I think this accelerates some of the testing that, that they were doing and they, they made this public so that other folks could also benefit from some of this infrastructure. Merch? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you're trying to build a lightning wallet and you're frequently opening and closing channels, then waiting for confirmations may delay your tests. But on the other side, I think there were some interesting critics critiques brought up in in their they they opened a related pull request to bitcoin core requesting that there would be a feature to have signets with custom block times and one of the pushbacks was if people get used to testing on signets with way faster black blocks they may be unconsciously or consciously optimizing for a network that doesn't have the properties of the Bitcoin mainnet and the product will be poorer for it. So people recommended to them that they would keep their testing infrastructure aligned with the Bitcoin network behavior because it would otherwise perhaps inform their development efforts incorrectly if they stop, for example, thinking of the UX of having to wait for confirmations in, in their setup of their lightning channels and things like that. So I, I thought that, that the 
the debate around this new signet with the very break, quick block interval spawned some interesting debate and thoughts on that, yeah. I hadn't seen that debate. I'm not sure how much I agree with that, but I'm glad folks are talking about it. Next item is Nunchuck adding coin control in BIP 329 support. So Nunchuck has an Android and an iOS mobile wallets, and they added coin control features, as well as the 329, which is something we've covered in a previous podcast, which is the ability to export wallet labels so that you have some context as to different addresses and transactions and being able to label those accordingly. Any thoughts, Merch? No, all good. My Citadel wallet adds enhanced Miniscript support. So in their latest... 1.3.0 release, the MyCitadel folks added more complicated Miniscript capabilities. And something notable I thought there was time lock capabilities. Um, you can jump into the release notes for that 1.3.0 release to see exactly what kind of complicated Miniscript you could be doing in there. But I thought this was noteworthy adoption of Bitcoin tech. Merch? Yeah, I, I thought it was super interesting. So I was in Miami last week and I saw no less than three or four different software demoing Miniscript capabilities. And just from the perspective of this starting out as an effort from protocol development with the idea of being able to put Miniscript support into, uh, well, pay to taproot script leaves. And then now this getting adopted broadly by wallet developers that want to surface the capability of making more complex scripts easily is super cool. And so some of the, the interesting applications that I've seen there is, of course, being able to build in decaying multisigs or to have built-in inheritance planning. I saw a demo where somebody had basically a, a drag-and-drop graphical editor for, for output policies. And yeah, there's some really cool stuff going on there. All of our wallets will be so much cooler in the next few years, and it will be so much easier to set up your own wallets. The last item from this monthly segment about changes to services and client software is Edge Firmware for Cold Card announced. So the CoinKite folks who produced the Cold Card hardware signing device announced an experimental firmware that's targeting really wallet developers or power users and allowing them to experiment with newer Bitcoin tech features. And so this initial release of this experimental firmware includes Taproot key, pen, key spend payments, some TapScript multi-sig payments, and the 129 support. So I thought that was pretty cool. I'm not sure if that was something that they were passing around internally and, and to known wallet software, and then they made it public, or if this is a new effort, but it's, it's definitely public now. Merch, any thoughts? Well, kind of preempting, uh, I kind of preempted that with the, the previous statement. Here again, we see people working on TabScript and yeah, I think it'll still take a... So the, the, the big problem with these big protocol development pushes is that it takes years to get out the, the protocol change in the first place, but then it takes another year or two for the new capabilities to arrive in the wallet space. So, for example, in winter, we saw some people be like, well, Taproot was a huge nothing burger. It's been a whole year that it's activated already and nobody is using it. There's nothing cool coming out of it and so forth. And now, another half a year later, we're starting to see uh, people build products around Taproot. We, we're seeing people build on Frost with new hardware wallets. We see, we're seeing people come out with Miniscript that leverages both the native SegWit V0 output capabilities, but also experimental support now for, for Tabscript, which is not completely finished yet. For example, in Bitcoin Core, we can only use Miniscript with native SegWit V0 so far. But yeah, the the release cycles or also just the, the time until the protocol efforts trickle down to, to the end user are just so much longer than everybody in, expects. But it, it is coming and it's it's really nice to see that and be reminded of that. Yeah, it's a great point. We we, we went through this list and, and 
we had Taproot support being added. We have a couple different additions related to Musig. And yeah, it, it always takes longer than you think. And I think it's a good perspective to point that out. Next section from the newsletter is releases and release candidates. First one is Core Lightning 23.05. We've been sort of teasing some of the features that were coming in this release with some of the release candidates, including two PSBTs and flexible fee rate management and, and blinded payments. Um, Merch, I don't know if there's anything else that, that we want to jump into in this recap. I, I just noticed that there's also some improvements on fee estimation in core light, for Core Lightning in this release. And I, I think it, it's kind of funny how there's a lot of things that everybody knows they need to have in their wallet software, but they, they're also on the, we can do that next month list, but then we, we get these bouts of extreme block space demand and suddenly people have features for RBFing, for CPFP, for fee estimation and consolidations and that sort of stuff pop back up to the top of the list and get them done. So yeah, I, I think we're going to see also this across a bunch of other wallets. Yes, similar to the, the last time these waves kind of came in, you know, I think, you know, folks weren't doing, exchanges weren't doing batch withdrawals and all of a sudden that was all done within a short period of time. And, and now we have this next wave and now you have big exchanges posting that they're they're going to support lightning and, and some of the fee bumping stuff that you mentioned as well. So I guess... Some of the some of the stress occasionally is good to to nudge people in in that direction. Yeah, I think that's maybe a, also a callback to our mempool column earlier. One of the reasons why block space should remain constrained is that we are pushing people to make the most with a limited resource, and it really it makes people more creative and inventive and pushes wallet development and protocol development to build for a future where a lot more people are going to try to use these limited resources. And even if we very eventually do decide to increase a block size, we will have all these tools to make the best use of, of the still limited block size. We're talking about block size increases. We're talking about softworks today. It's going to be controversial on social media. Merch, we talked about these maintenance release candidates last week for Bitcoin Core, and, and now they're they're out. The twenty three point two and the twenty four point one maintenance releases. Do you want to jump into any of that in this discussion? Oh, Gloria, Gloria wants to jump into it. I just wanted to say, and this wouldn't have made it into the newsletter, but we just tagged twenty five today. New major release would recommend updating. And I also want to say that Bitcoin Core has put out three releases in the last two weeks, mostly in response to the high transaction volume that started two or three weeks ago. So I never want to hear people saying Bitcoin Core moves too slowly ever again. Gloria, do you want to give a headline of what what was addressed in that short time period for these maintenance releases relating to, to fees? I don't want to get too many details. So if you notice that your Raspberry Pi is seeming like a fire hazard in your apartment, it has a lot to do with the volume of transactions on the network. There are some, let's say, inefficiencies. And yeah, it was pretty CPU intensive. And now that's been made much more efficient. That's also coupled with we were seeing some, uh, there there's some malicious actors like messing with, with block relay, completely separate from the transaction volume. So would recommend updating, but I would recommend 25 as the best thing to upgrade to if you're going to restart your node. Segwaying into 25, Gloria. I know there was a PR review club, I think it was yesterday, and I believe that the topic was going through sort of a testing guide for 25.0. I think we had Andreas on who created the, the 24 guide to testing. Do, do you want to plug that and, and comment on that, even though the, the release is already tagged? 
Yeah. So with 24, for example, we cut 24.0 and then within like 24 hours, somebody found a bug that definitely needed to be fixed. This is, of course, it happens. I mean, ended up tagging 24.0.1, but ideally we catch it while we're doing the RCs. And so, yeah, again, like my main message when I'm, you know, coming onto these Twitter spaces is like, this is a collaborative effort. It's not the devs over there are figuring out how to make Bitcoin core work and then they're shipping it to us. It's, you know, we're all users of, of Bitcoin and we all do better when the software is working well. So highly appreciative of the Optech newsletter putting out release candidates every week or, you know, publishing the fact that there are release candidates and testing them is very important. Yeah, that's kind of, that's it. Merch, any comments on the maintenance releases or 25.0? I just wanted to note, so for people that build on current core for their enterprise software, the release candidates or rather the releases with the point releases like 23.2 and 24.1 those only backport bug fixes so if you're if you want to leave a little time for 25 to be out and not upgrade to a version with new features you can of course just upgrade to the point releases and yeah if you're just running your node that's unassociated with funds and unassociated with new software please feel free to upgrade to 25 to help us test it in production, and yeah. Last section of the newsletter is notable code and documentation changes. We have a few of those. I'll take the opportunity to solicit from any listeners if you want to request speaker access, if you have a comment or question on anything we've discussed today. Now's the time to do that, and we'll get to that after we go through these PRs. Likewise, there you can respond to this Twitter space thread, and you can type out something if you don't feel comfortable with speaker access. First PR is Bitcoin Core 27021. And Merch, I believe you did the write-up for the newsletter and you are also the author. So I would be foolish to not give the floor to you to explain this. All right. So this PR is the first of two PRs to address a bug that we've had since four-digit issues, which is like six, seven years ago. And that is when we build transactions with unconfirmed inputs, we may underestimate the target fee rate in our new transaction if we're spending unconfirmed inputs that have a lower parent, lower fee rate parent transaction. So we... If if the parent transaction has a lower fee rate than the new transaction we create, we're obviously creating a CPFP. And if we don't estimate how much fees we need to add to bump the parent, we're creating a CPFP transaction whose package fee rate is going to be lower than what we intended to target with the new transaction. So to that end, we have to find out how much fee to, to add to our transaction in order to bump our ancestry to the same fee rate. And that turned out to be way more complicated than in our first approach. It took us three approaches. I've had a lot of help with this PR from Gloria and Andrew Chow and a ton of reviewers. So this PR, Mini Miner, allows to address any possible ancestor sets we calculate which transactions will make it into the block before our target fee rate. And then from the remaining transactions that are left, we can calculate exactly how much sats you add to the child transaction. And we, we can then in the follow-up PR that I'm still working on, use this in our transaction building to correctly assess fees, to automatically bump parent transactions and hopefully to, to get a smooth sailing experience whenever we are forced to use unconfirmed. Note that Bitcoin Core, of course, tries to not spend unconfirmed inputs in the first place. So if you have funds that are confirmed, they they will get used first. And yeah, so this this has been a pretty interesting one to work on. Took took us three tries, 15 months to go back and forth and repeatedly work on this one. So yeah, pretty happy that got merged last week. Congrats, Merch. 
Gloria, you were a reviewer and collaborator. Do you, did you have anything to add to this, Pia? We are now the authors of something that starts with Minnie, and we are not Peter. <laughs> Next PR is LND7668, adding the ability to associate up to 500 characters of text with a channel when opening it, and then allowing the operator to retrieve that information later. Digging into this PR just slightly it, it really is a note to yourself about why you opened up the channel it's only ever stored locally and it, it no in no way impacts how the channel operates so it's similar to like what we were mentioning earlier with the wallet labeling except for you're sort of labeling the channel merch any thoughts I mean, I wish I could do that with Twitter users. I often go to conferences and then I add people and I then months later see that I'm following someone and I don't remember who it was because their username might be completely unreflective of their actual name and they use some picture instead of the, their face. So I wish I had that on Twitter too. Well, maybe after Elon fixes our weekly Twitter space issues with the, this Optech podcast, maybe then he can get to adding memos into follow requests. Next PR is LDK2204, adding the ability to set custom feature bits. I think it was in newsletter 250 that we covered a similar PR to LND. And as a reminder, the setting of feature bits allow you to communicate to peers what additional or optional Lightning Network features your node supports. And so this is a, a way for you to, to set those and then also understand peers announcements as well. Merch? Yeah, I think that came about in the context of being able to write plugins that sort of handle parts of your node, node interactions. So for example, if you had a plugin that preempted the processing of a channel announcement and did some additional checks on it and then maybe for example allowed dual funding or well that didn't make sense in the context of how i led up to that but if if you have custom features or if you for example open up your lightning node to have multiple users so keys need to be retrieved from elsewhere and signatures need to be made by other parties or anything like that you could sort of surface these capabilities and feature bits through this avenue. So this is more of a developer update here. LDK1841. This change addresses a potential pinning attack that was addressed by a recommendation in Bolt 5 previously. And Bolt 5 covers the Lightning-related recommendations for on-chain transaction handling. And the Ellen the specification allows multiple HTLCs that were pending at the time a channel was unilaterally closed to all be settled in a single transaction. But there's some scenarios, namely when your outputs may pay your counterparty, which would allow them to pin this justice transaction. And so the recommendation from the Bolt was to continue to allow that batching um, for efficiency purposes. But when there's a, when it's getting close to the, the time left to the expiry, it's to split those HTLCs into separate transactions close to when that time lock expiration is happening so that the pinning isn't as much of a problem. I think that the Bolt recommendation was 18 blocks, but digging into this, it sounds like the implementations are potentially doing much larger blocks in terms of that threshold at which you would go from batching those those closes to individual ones to prevent the pinning. Merch? Nothing to add from me. Final PR this week is to the BIPs repository. It's 14.12 and that it updates that wallet label export BIP that we spoke about earlier, BIP 329, and it adds an optional new field to the wallet export, which stores key origination information. And that key origination information is a BIP380 abbreviated output descriptor that describes a BIP32 compatible originating wallet. And the motivation for this change seems to be a concern about disambiguating transaction labels from different wallets that would be in the same export, which is particularly useful when you're exporting multiple accounts or you're doing an export where there's multiple accounts derived from the same seed. 
At least that was my understanding of the motivation. Merch, did you get a chance to dig into this one and the motivation? I, I think you explained that right. So Sparrow Wallet, the author of this change to the, the spec, has a very nice wallet that, or a spare wallet is a very nice wallet that especially surfaces the ability to have multi-sig setups quite easily. And in that context, I could see how, how being able to have more labels and tracking on where keys were generated and how they belong together would be super helpful just as a human to to be able to keep track of multi multiple wallets, which you would probably set up if you use a cool wallet like Sparrow. As you can tell, I'm a pretty big fan since meeting Craig two weeks ago in Nashville. <laughs> well, that's it for the newsletter this week. I don't see any requests for speaker access for comments or questions. So, Merch, any announcements before we jump off? Nothing from me. Excellent. Gloria, anything before we jump off? Nope. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks to my co-host, Merch, as always. Thanks to Robin and Lucas for joining us. Thanks to Gloria for joining us. And thanks for Dave for chiming in.